You know, I am sad to announce this is this is the final sermon in the Nehemiah series, and um, my son Aaron predicted this, and I said, "No, no, no! Our people love God's word; they would stay in it forever." That's true. There's 65 more books. I cannot even remember not preaching in Nehemiah. I think I started this in April 2012. But, uh, but we're in the last one. And I gotta tell you, I had to trim so much of this message to get it to fit into this time. And everything that I cut out of it was heartbreakingly, it just felt, it felt heartbreakingly essential. So, uh, I got a lot more to go. Uh, if you want to know the stuff that I put on the cutting room floor, I think it could go another month or two. So just let me know. Nehemiah chapter 13. I hope you have your Bibles with you. We're a church that is always preaching out of the Word of God, and that's where our confidence is. So let's get our Bibles open. If you didn't bring your Bible, there should be one right in front of you. I think it's blue. Uh, It might even just fall right open to Nehemiah. So if you get those open. Now a hunter aimed his gun for a killing shot in a large bear. And he was about to pull the trigger. And the bear said to him in a low, soothing voice, Isn't it better to talk than to shoot? Why don't we negotiate the matter? So lowering his rifle, the hunter replied, I want a fur coat. Well, good, said the bear. That is a a negotiable item. I only want a full stomach. So let us sit down and work out a compromise. Well, they brokered a deal, and after a time, the bear walked away alone. And the negotiations had been successful. The bear had a full stomach and the hunter had his fur coat. Now I want you to hold on to that. A silly little opening story. I want you to hold on to that because you cannot negotiate with your spiritual enemy. And we've got three of these spiritual enemies and we've been seeing them all through Nehemiah chapter 13. We've studied two of them the last several weeks. One of them was Tobiah. The other one was Geshem. We saw Tobiah being representative of the flesh, that part of us that wants to pull us back into sin, that resists the new nature, fights and wars with the Spirit of God. And we've got Geshem, the Arab, who represents the world, that world system that is energized by the God of this air, Satan, that world system that powers itself, it is powered, rather, against the will of God. It opposes God in every turn. Well, today we see, finally, the third enemy. His name is Sanballat, whose name means enemy in secret. Now, did you hear that? Sanballat's name means enemy in secret. And he was the ringleader. He was the governor of Samaria, which was to the north of Jerusalem. Samaria, which was once the capital. Can you get this? The capital of Israel. And they were conquered by Assyria years ago, about 105 years before Judah was conquered. And they were conquered in, and Sennacherib, the ruler of Assyria, he was brilliant. And you know what they used to do? They would, 
They would bring the cream of the crop out of a conquered area and settle them around the world. And then they would import different peoples. And then they would intermarry and they would have children. And they would be too weak to rise up and defend their historical nations. So we've got Sanballat, who is the governor of this region to the north of Jerusalem. And he represents the greatest enemy. He's the ringleader. He represents the most powerful of them all. He represents Satan, the prince and the ruler of the air, the god of this world. Now listen, Satan is not a force. Satan is not an impersonal symbol. He's a living being of greatest evil, who hates God, despises us, God's people, opposes the work of the gospel. He's a roaring lion. He's seeking whom he can devour. And he's given to intense jealousy of God. He has great rage. But he loves to operate in the shadows. He's rarely out in the open. He is the enemy in secret. So this is the background. I'm going to give you the background. I'm going to give you the situation of what's occurring in our passage in chapter 13, verses 23 through the end of the book. And then we're going to look at the solution. The situation is this. Nehemiah, you remember, he had served for 12 years. He was the, he became the governor. He was the cupbearer to the king of Assyria, Artaxerxes. And the cupbearer was third in command of the entire nation. He gave it up. He asked Artaxerxes, can I go back to Jerusalem? Even though I've never been there, I'm going to go back. They're in great shame. They're in disrepair. Their wall is down. They're a people who is living under condemnation. And Artaxerxes said, yes, you can go back. You've got a period of time. Well, he stayed for 12 years. The wall was built in 52 days, but the people needed revival. And then the governor, Nehemiah, had to restore order to the Jewish people. So he stayed there for 12 years and then he was recalled to Assyria. We don't know how, or rather Persia. We don't know how long he was in Persia. Likely two to three years. It takes four months to go one way. So four months back, four months returning. So likely a couple years. And he returned to Jerusalem after a period of time. Artaxerxes lets him go back to Jerusalem and he returns in verse 23. Here we go. Let's look at it. He saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Now, Ammon and Moab, you remember their history? Not a very good history. They're illegitimate cousins of the Jews. You remember Lot? had two daughters, and when they fled Sodom and Gomorrah, they went and they lived in a cave. Lot's wife was turned to a pillar of salt from her disobedience. And looking back, they get to a cave, and his daughters say, you know what, not a lot of men around. How are we going to have children? Nothing worse, by the way, particularly in the Old Testament, for a woman than to be barren, to not have children. It was considered the greatest curse of God. And so there's not a lot of men around. How are we going to have children? How are we going to keep our line of descent moving, going? So they looked at their father and they said, let's have children through him. So the oldest daughter gets him drunk, has a boy. His name is Ammon. The next night, the youngest daughter gets her father Lot drunk and has a boy that eventually becomes the father of Moab. 
You got the Ammonites, you've got the Moabites. They speak almost identical language with he, with the Hebrew Jews. They lived near the Jews. They're constantly in and out of war with the Jews. And, got, and finally, God commanded, I don't want an Ammonite and I don't want a Moabite in my presence ever. Don't bring him into my presence. He totally and finally and irrevocably rejected the Ammonites and the Moabites. Now here's Nehemiah, verse 23. He comes back from Persia. He sees the Jews who had married women of Ashdod. Here they are, Ammon and Moab. Do you remember that I've told you several times in this series? I'm sure you remember every one of the 42 messages. I've mentioned several times that Satan doesn't have an inexhaustible number of strategies. He's just really, really good at using the ones he's got. He's had thousands of years to refine his expertise. And one of the most successful strategies throughout all of Israel's history was to tempt them to marry outside of their Hebrew faith. It always reduced, when they did this, it always reduced the worship of God's people. It compromised their obedience. Listen, it did this. It destroyed their witness to the world. See, Israel was no less a missionary people than we are. It was vital that their message would be uncorrupted by the way that they lived their lives. So when they mixed their marriages, it diluted their devotion to the Lord and their witness to the nations was destroyed. You know, in the ancient world, at that time, when two people made a marriage agreement, they normally, normally confirmed their commitment in the presence of their gods. And they gave each other idols, and those idols took a prominent place into their house, to their houses. So you'd get married, and she would bring her gods, and he would bring his gods, and they would have a syncretistic wedding that would be a worship service to both gods, and wedding gifts from not only the betrothed, but wedding gifts from the families and the friends. They were idols of their gods, and they would bring these idols into their houses. And nothing, God wanted nothing to corrupt the the love of his people, the devotion of his people, that he wanted them to serve him exclusively and be witnesses to the ends of the earth. You see, the Lord, the Lord's pretty concerned with the purity of our faith. He's pretty concerned with the holiness of our lives. Now, why couldn't they intermarry? Now, I want to I want to clear this up because some people don't understand this. The issue was not an ethnic issue. It was an ethical issue. It was one of spiritual loyalty and doctrinal purity. Listen, it's not about a black man marrying a white woman or a Chinese man marrying a Korean woman. It's about mixing religions, merging different ideologies. It'd be like one of you marrying a Mormon or a a Muslim or a Jehovah's Witness. You claim to be a Christian and you marry outside of your Christian faith. But we are God's people. And we cannot, we cannot and must not be yoked together in marriage. Listen, outside of our faith, let me give you one more category, non-believers. We've been teaching this to our children since they were 
basically old enough to understand the English language. You will marry one day those that person who honors God. The evidence of their relationship with Jesus must be there. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, Paul preached. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness? So listen, some of you who are younger or single, listen, I want you to look at me for a moment. Because when I was a youth pastor for 13 years, this was probably one of the top three, the top three issues that I worked with consistently. You don't marry outside of the faith. You know why I'm telling you that? Not only because it's a command in the Word of God. Listen, because I do a lot of counseling. And I get a lot of people into counseling who've married an unbeliever and they are living painful lives, lives of sorrow. They're raising children where their spouse doesn't have the same religion or even the same faith or even any religion. And there is, there is difficulty in that. There is pain in that. There's pain in any instance where we disregard God's gracious, loving commands. You see, an unequal yoke was a yoke put over two animals. And they were very, very careful because if you had an, a larger animal yoked with a smaller angle, uh, a smaller animal, then the plow cannot go straight. It's always going to be fighting against a straight line, going in a curve. So they would yoke together two same strength, same sized animals. And it, it, in a marriage between an unbeliever and a believer, you're unequally yoked. You can't walk in a straight line. There is constant pressure, constant tension to come out of your devotion to Jesus Christ. You see, they're unequally yoking in marriage. Nehemiah sees this. Look at verse 24. You want to see why it's so important? One of the reasons why you don't marry an unbeliever outside of the faith. Look what he says. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod. You know who the Ashdodites were? They were the leftover Philistines. Ashdod was one of the five garrisons of the Philistines. These are the Philistines. Now they're called Ashdodites. And half of their children spoke the language of the of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but the language of each people. You see, moms, I want you to hear this, and girls who have not yet had children, I want you to hear this. Your role in the family, it cannot be even estimated. Denise always jokes with me that I am the head of the family. She's the neck that turns the head. And she's pretty, she's pretty correct in that. Listen, your value in the family is crucial. You are immeasurable. Listen, whether your husband recognizes that or not, whether your children affirm that or not, I'm telling you, you have a, you have a value, you have a place in your homes with your children and your grandchildren. And if God favors you with your great grandchildren, it is not measurable. And when you get back into Nehemiah, when you start to see what is happening and you begin to understand it's the moms that are going to spend the most time with the children. It's the moms that are going to teach them her principles. It's the moms whose principles the children are going to adopt, whose values the children will live and will speak inevitably her language. They were marrying women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. 
And many of these children, they couldn't even speak. Half the children couldn't even speak the language of the Hebrews, which was the language of the Jews, which was Hebrew. They couldn't, couldn't hear it. They couldn't understand it. They didn't know God's word. Listen, it was an oratory teaching society. You were taught the word of God orally. You couldn't read. Most couldn't read. You were taught it orally. And if you couldn't understand the language, then you could not know. You could not learn. Therefore, you cannot live the word of God. Now, I want you to hear this. This is one of the most patient strategies of Satan. And the devastating effect of it, you got to hear this, weaves itself generationally. You might marry someone today who is not a believer and you may have friction in your marriage and you may try to rear children and train them in righteousness, but you will have your spouse pulling away from that, pulling them towards his own or her own values and principles. And it will be constant tension about how do you raise your children in that. At best, you will give them a split understanding of God. And at worst, they almost always will pull away from Jesus. They don't know the word of God. They didn't know the word of God. Listen, I was a youth pastor for 13 years. It's one of the greatest problems I saw facing our children and teens in this church. It's they don't know the word of God. We're raising a generation of children who simply do not know God's word. Verse 24 in our text could not possibly be more accurate of our current situation. See, when the empty but persuasive philosophies of the world come in and they don't know any better. Listen, our children don't know any better than to believe it. And when you believe something, you begin to live it. It's no surprise when they're not walking with the Lord. Now listen, parents, how many of you are in, are intentionally, proactively, I don't care how what age your children are. If they're living in the home, fathers, you're the priest. And mothers, you are influential beyond measure to teach the Word of God. How often are you doing it? Are you helping them get through life and navigate situations by taking them to God's Word, showing the life-giving counsel of God's Word that's always relevant, never ever fails? Parents, are you doing this? Are you raising your children 18, 19, 14, 4. Are you raising your children with confidence in the Word of God, training them what God says? Listen, if you're not doing that, then don't be surprised when they get barraged in college with the empty philosophies of the world and they begin to believe it, run after it, and live it. This is why we're starting Awana. Approved workmen are not ashamed. Listen, this is why we're, we're starting this. This ministry is built on teaching God's word, scripture memory, scripture training, how to live it out. If you've got children in the ages of three to 12, parents, get them to this weekly ministry. And if you've got to make, listen, if you've got to make a choice between a sporting event and Awana, I'm telling you, choose Awana. Choose Awana. Get them raised on the Word of God. 
so that then when they get out of underneath your home's roof, they will have a foundation that they can withstand anything that the enemies bring. The eternal value of knowing God's word is greater than any achievement in this world. Any. See, Satan's the mastermind. He is behind this world system. His willing power, his willing partner is our own flesh. And they work together to bring us away from our devotion, away from our worship in God. So what is Nehemiah going to do? He gets back from Persia. They've got mixed marriages going on, children being raised. They don't even know the language of the Hebrews, the Hebrew language any longer. What's he going to do about this? What's the solution? Let me tell you the first thing he does. You see it in verse 25. You ready? Better hold on. And I confronted them and cursed them. I kind of like Nehemiah. And beat some of them and pulled out their hair. I wouldn't really like Nehemiah if I was one of them. You know what Mark Driscoll said one time? He's got a, uh, he's got a guy in his church that has a karate studio and an MMA gym. Mixed martial arts. And he goes there and he's talking to this guy and he actually, I don't think about a year ago, maybe less, preached through Nehemiah and, uh, and he was in this passage and he was talking to this guy. This guy's got eight, I think eight black belt degrees. He says, what do you do when you've got somebody that won't listen to you in your studio? What do you got, what do you do when you got someone in your gym that won't listen to what you're instructing them to do? And he says, you know what I do? I, I'll tell you what I do. I say, come on, get in the octagon. You and I are going to go at it. And Driscoll says, well, what do you do when you get in there? And he says, I'll tell you what I do. I take them down and I break their nose. He says, no, you don't. He says, listen, come by my studio and you'll see everybody with the bent and crooked noses. They're the nicest guys in the gym. Listen, Nehemiah confronted them, cursed them, and beat some of them, and pulled out their hair. He confronted the Jews who were guilty. He cursed them. Now listen, this is not profanity. This is not dropping the F-bomb on them. He's calling down God's judgment on them. That's what it means to curse. You invite and invoke God's judgment on the guilty. And some of the obstinate ones he beats... And he pulls out their beard hair, which was a common punishment in that culture, intended to humiliate the guilty. Listen, some of you guys, you don't got to worry about that. You're not growing it. But there's no negotiating with our enemies. And Nehemiah showed no willingness to compromise. You know what that phrase, he pulled out their hair, you know what that means in the Hebrew language? It means to make bald. He's just pulling thatches of hair out of their faces. He's not compromising. He's righteously angry. You know how you know if you're righteously angry? Don't think for a moment that you're very often righteously angry. Because it's a rare commodity among us. But I'll tell you how you know if you're righteously angry. Because it involves two things. It involves injustice or rather justice and it involves the glory of God. Righteous anger is when you see injustice and you do anything you can within your power to bring glory to God. That's what righteous anger does. Unrighteous anger is you see injustice that's happening to you and you do everything in your power to bring glory to yourself. 
See, it's about injustice or justice and glory. It reacts to injustice and it brings God's glory. So Nehemiah is righteously angry and he makes them look him in the eye. Look at verse 25 and promise him that they're going to stop their sinful behavior. And I made them take an oath in the name of God saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Listen, he knows something. He knows that righteous anger will not bring transformation. So he shows his mastery of the greatest weapon that every Christian possesses. Let's get to the next step. First, he got righteously angry. Now look what it is. He becomes the master of the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Listen, these men are arguing their case. And I want you to see this. Now look at me for a second. And we'll get in the text in just a moment. They're arguing. How do you know that, Pastor Tim? Well, I'm going to show you in a minute. They're arguing with him. He's saying, what are you doing? You promised, chapter 10, you're not going to intermarry. God commanded, don't marry. Don't intermarry people outside of the faith. They're not believers. They're going to bring you down. You're going to rear children that won't love God. And they're arguing with him. But he won't have any of this. Now, listen, can't you think... Of what they're arguing with him about. It's the same stuff that I hear all the time. Maybe a little bit different because of the times. Listen, I've had these arguments with people. I've done pre-marriage counseling where I said, I'm not marrying you. I cannot marry you. I can't marry a believer to an unbeliever. I can marry an unbeliever to an unbeliever and I'll marry a believer to a believer. But I can't unequally yoke you. I will be responsible. So I've had to not marry people. And I walked them through the salvation message. And I waited and waited and waited to see if they're going to put their faith in the Lord. If the one who was not a believer would put her faith or his faith in the Lord. Listen, you've got to honor God. But I can hear them arguing with him. They're justifying Nehemiah, these marriages are for business alliances. Listen, it's for commercial interests, which, by the way, was often the case. You married to ally. You married to strengthen your commercial investments. I can hear them arguing. Nehemiah, listen, it's a political alliance. These are They, they live right down the road from us and they're constantly threatening us. Now we're going to marry into their family. We're going to let them into our family. It will, it will put a ceasefire. I can hear them arguing. How about this one? I hear this one more than any of them. But we're in love. I love that person. I want to marry that person because I love that person. And, and Nehemiah, they're wonderful ladies if you just get to know them. I can hear all these arguments. But Nehemiah says, verse 27, Shall we then listen to you? That's how you know they're arguing. Shall we then listen to your arguments, your justifications, your rationalizations, and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? You know, the word listen in the Hebrew language, listen, it, it means this. It means to hear with the intention of obeying. It means I want to hear, my ears are open because I want to run after your words. I want to do your words. It's the seductive voice of the enemy. 
And we first saw Satan using it with Eve. But Nehemiah, he's strong in the word of God. He knows truth and he explains it to them in verse 26. Did not Solomon, now look at your text. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? And among the many nations, there was no king like him. And he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nonetheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Do you hear what he's saying? Listen, you're arguing with me? You're, you're rationalizing what is clearly commanded in scriptures? Listen, let me tell you, the best example... Your favorite king, the king that's done more for us than anybody, he even went astray from the Lord. He was beloved by God. There was no king like him. And even even Solomon could not disobey this command and stay devoted to God. Who do you think you are? It should have brought a lot of conviction. Even invoking the name of Solomon should have brought a lot of conviction because the entire nation of Israel was split into civil war and into two kingdoms because of Solomon's sin with all these women. See, what he's doing is he's bringing the word of God to bear. He's the master of the sword of the spirit. And that sword penetrates and it reveals sin. It brings conviction. It produces transformation. Listen, it cuts through the webs of lies and it makes the shadows part so you can see the enemy. See, righteous anger should be our attitude. Now you got to hear this. That gets you to pick up the sword of the Spirit. Righteous anger should lead you to pick up the sword of, the, of, of truth. And that powerful sword cuts deeply. Listen, it goes all the way to the core and to the root. And that's the third solution. You got to get to the root. You got to get to the root. Do you remember Hurricane Irene? I think it hit in late September or early October. I forget. It was one of those months. Here comes Hurricane Irene. It's Saturday. The storm is arriving that day and strengthening in intensity. And all of a sudden, I could not sleep Friday night because I had a root canal spring up. And it was just throbbing. I couldn't even get to sleep. It was just hurting and aching. Saturday morning, I'm going, man, I can man up. I can get my man card out. I can make it through this. I got to preach tonight, tomorrow morning. Please, Lord, send that storm. Send the hurricane so I don't have to preach. I didn't really pray that. But I said, I can make it through this. It got worse and it got worse and it got worse. And I called up my dentist. My dentist goes to our church. He knows I'm a wimp. He specializes in pain-free dentistry. If you're like me, I'll give you his name afterwards. I called him up. He's at home. His office is closed on Saturdays. I said, listen, I'm in such pain. What can I do? What can I do to get this pain out of my tooth? He says, there's only one thing you can do. I said, what? Come into my office and let me do a root canal. I've never had a root canal. I've only heard about root canals. They're on those stories, you know, of infamy. And I said, are you serious? You can't just give me some medicine, dope, heroin? I I don't care. It hurts. At that point, you'll take anything. 
He says, meet me at one o'clock. I said, but you're, please, your office is not open. Just give me drugs. He says, no, I'll come in. You and I can do this alone. I said, you mean without your staff? He says, yes. I got in there. I got. Let me just tell you this. You got to understand me. The last dental visit I made of a regular dentist visit before a year and a half ago was my 11th grade in high school. When I got my braces off, I am that scared of dentists. Now listen, I'm the manliest man you'll ever see, but I'm scared of dentists. All right. He says, come on in. I said, will you, will you give me something so that it doesn't hurt? It's like I'm an addict. Will you give me something? He says, I promise you, I will go slow. He drilled, he drilled, and it did not hurt to the grace and wonder of God. But he drilled all the way down. Listen, you gotta get to the roots and look at verse 28. And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the, Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat, the Horonite. You didn't think we were going to see his name, did you? Listen, the son-in-law of Sanballat. He's, he's right there. He married into his daughter. Sanballat's daughter married one, the grandson of Eliashib. Now listen, this is the shadow that Sanballat's working within. Even in chapter 13, he doesn't make a personal appearance. Listen, I don't know what you're thinking about Satan, but Satan's not omnipresent. He can only be in one place at one time. I'm pretty sure Satan doesn't even know you. He probably has never even seen you or done anything against you. He's with the big people in the kingdom of God trying to really foil their faith and their ministry. But he's got minions, he's got demons, he's got legions, and they're coming against us. And here we see the principle. Sam Ballot's not here in chapter 13, but he's got a great, he's got a son-in-law that is. And Eliashib, the high priest. Listen, Eliashib, chapter 3, he's the first guy in the wall. He builds two sections of the wall. If we didn't read this chapter and earlier that he's related to Tobiah, another enemy, we would have thought the world of Eliashib. He's related to Tobiah. Worse, his grandson marries Sanballat's daughter. Sanballat's a Samaritan. And this grandson, listen, why is this so bad? The grandson is in line to eventually be the high priest. See, Satan's patient. He looks generations ahead. Did you know that? He looks generations ahead to execute his evil strategies. And Nehemiah knows by controlling the priesthood, Sanballat could destroy the Jews, look what he does, verse 28. You gotta love this guy. Therefore I chased him from me. Son of law of Sambal, he chases him from me. You resist the devil and he will flee from you, James says. Can't you picture a righteously angry Nehemiah? He is seeing injustice occurring and he is responding to the glory of God and he is chasing after this wannabe one day high priest at sword point. I'm sure he does. I'm sure he's got a sword out. You see, you've got to get to the roots if transformation is to take place or change is going to be short Lived, And this is where we tie in this battle to the New Testament in Ephesians 6. Can you look at the screens? Listen to this. Take up the shield of faith 
with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Now, I want you to see some background on this. It's really interesting. The word for sword meant a short six to 18 inch dagger. And it was used for multiple reasons. If you're in war and you drop your sword or your javelin or your spear, you pull this short dagger out for in-close fighting. It's made for precision strikes. If you're a priest, you've got one of these daggers. It's used to kill the sacrificial animal by slitting its throat and butchering and carving the offering, the animal for the offering. It's used by butchers. It was used, by the way, by surgeons. And there the function was not destroying, but it was piercing and revealing. It is the sword of the Spirit of God. It is the mighty Word of God. Now listen, that's... I want you to hold your Bible for a second. If you brought your Bible, I don't care if it's electronic or paper. Hold your Bible for a minute. When this comes into here, because we love it, because we esteem it, because we value it higher than any other, any other philosophy or any other teaching, when it comes into here, and you learn it, and you study it, and you live it, you now have a dagger that is used. When your enemy comes close to you, you can offer precision strikes. You know what? The enemy's going to tell you sometimes, you know what? You're worthless. You're worthless. Look at you failed again. No wonder your parents said that about you all the time. But you know this. You've got the dagger. You've got the sword of the Spirit's truth. And you can say to that person, listen, my God loves me. I am as beloved by God as Solomon and as beloved by God as Jesus. And the same blessings that the Father has to Jesus the Son, He's given to me according to Ephesians. And there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. The enemy, that is your lie. You're telling me I am in shame. You're telling me I'm in filthy rags. God's telling me I'm dressed in white, righteous robes. There's your dagger. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. But there's another notable truth from Ephesians 6. The sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. The word of God here doesn't mean general knowledge of the scriptures. That's a different word. It means you understand the specific truths for certain situations and you can meet the attack of the enemy with that truth. You see, our warfare of opposing Satan makes it necessary that we master the scriptures, that you study it, that you apply it in precision strikes so that you can destroy strongholds, destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. Friends, are you studying God's word? Not just reading it, that's general knowledge. Are you studying it so that you can meet the enemy with a dagger of the Spirit of God and precisely strike where he is weak? He will flee from your presence. But if this solution is going to take lasting effect, there's got to be one more point. And Nehemiah restores order. See, when the Word of God shows us the root... 
and we confess it out of our lives, we've got to set up measures to keep that root from growing again. You know, Amdro, you ever heard of Amdro, the the ant-killing experts? Here's their slogan. You get on their website, you'll see it. It says, kill the queen, destroy the colony. If you're dealing with carpenter ants in your home, listen, if you don't deal with it, they're going to damage it, could potentially destroy your home. And how do they do it? If you set up ant traps and you've got thousands of carpenter ants in your home, that's not going to deal with the problem. You're not getting to the root. The root is a queen. You've got to get to the queen. So what they often do is they track down the paths of the carpenter ants to because all the ants will eventually get back to the queen. And when they find the queen, they kill the queen. And when you kill the queen, you destroy the colony. And they explain on their website, you've got to know your enemy. And then they encourage you to join forces with them. That sounds kind of like Nehemiah. Pretty good advice. You've got to kill the queen, destroy the colony, know your enemy, join forces. Kind of everything I've been preaching in this series. Look what Nehemiah does, verse 30. Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign. And I established the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work. And I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. If you've been with us in our study through this book, you've got to be noticing this pattern. Cleansing and restoration. And once again, Nehemiah has leader, the leaders of God. He, he gets them spiritually clean. That's confession. Right? Confess your sins before the Lord. He's going to make you clean. That's confession. And then he puts them back into a place of service. And again, the priests and the Levites, those spiritual leaders, they're back in a place to oversee the worship and the word. Do you know why I say that? The worship and the word. Do you know they're the two most attacked areas of every church, of every Christ-exalting church? I mean, have you ever noticed the worship wars in so many churches? And have you noticed the so prevalent liberal slide of the preaching in churches? The enemy is going after the worship and the enemy is going after the word. They're always attacked. They want us worshiping anyone and anything but God. They do not want you in his word. But in, but Nehemiah shows the example first and he provides the wood offering. That's That's how you make your burnt offerings. That's how you make your sacrifices. He's the example. And he provides the first fruits. Means he gives his best in every area of his life. His time, his talent, and his treasure. God would never get from Nehemiah what he had left. He always got his best. Let me close this entire series with two quick observations. First, when we are intolerant, now listen, when we are intolerant of these enemies, the world, the flesh, and Satan, when we are intolerant of them, we're going to struggle. We're going to suffer. Listen, the world's frowns are more common than its smiles towards those who follow Christ. If you take a stand with Jesus, you're going to often be lonely and you're going to often be discouraged. You know, I really don't think God's people mourned 
when Nehemiah went back to Persia, and I don't read anything that they celebrated when he returned. In fact, if you read this book, I get, and I'm sure you do too, the sense that Nehemiah must have been a pretty lonely guy. But he was more concerned about God's glory than his own. He cared more about God's fame than his own reputation and comfort. And he knew that this world is an eye blink and eternity goes on and on. And that one day he would hear Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant. You want to hear those words? I know I do. If you're going to hear those words, then you give all of your life to God. Not just what you're comfortable with. And you lead and you serve for God's glory. But let me give you one final lesson. And I want you to hear this one because maybe this is the most important. Grace does what the law cannot do. It transforms us. You know, as long as Nehemiah was there, the people seemed able to hold to their faithfulness to God. But the moment he leaves, when he departs, or when he didn't give his full attention to a matter, they just kept drifting. And Nehemiah represents, the the governorship of Nehemiah represents the law of God. And the law of God is an external force upon his people to drive his people to bankruptcy. Do you understand that? The, The Ten Commandments and the law of God was meant to show you, persuade you, beyond a doubt, you cannot keep any of the law, not to God's holy standards. It was meant to drive you to give up. It was meant to get you to Jesus. The law of God was your tutor. It walked you to Jesus, said, listen, this is what the weight of God's holiness feels like. You gotta, you gotta live all of it, all of it to the standard of God. You can't have a mulligan. There's no passes here. And what you would irrevocably and unavoidably feel is I can't do any of it to God's standard. I need Jesus. See, the law of God cannot give you the desire to obey God (coughs) with a heart of willing worship. Grace gives that through Jesus. And God's got to build a wall of salvation through the death of His Son, Jesus Christ. And when you trust in Jesus, He gives you a new nature. Now listen, He gives you a new nature and He pours His Spirit's desires into that nature so that you're not battling and battling and battling this sin for the rest of your life and losing. You're battling it with new desires to say, you know what, I don't want that anymore. I don't want that anymore. Somebody told me this last week, I met with them. They had a long habit of pornography. God setting him free. He had a couple hours of where he had nothing to do and that familiar temptation started walking him back to that and he started looking at porn again and all of a sudden he realized, I don't really want to do this. I don't want to do this. Click the computer off. That's the evidence That you've got a new nature. That's the work of grace in your life as the Spirit of God pours His desires through His Word into your heart so that you don't want what God hates. 
if we're going to rise up and build our lives strong in worship in the Word of God, if we're going to rise up and build, then we've got to come to that grace and the one who gives it, the one who's the founder and perfecter of our faith. Because he is our great God. He is the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. Man, I love Nehemiah. I cannot wait. You know what I'm going to do? When I get to heaven, he's on my top three list. I'm going to go try to find Nehemiah. And I can tell you what I think Nehemiah is going to do. He says, hey, Tim, nice to meet you. Thanks for preaching. Could have done a lot better, but you did the best you could. But thanks for preaching it. But listen, I want to, I want to take you to somebody that I'd rather you meet and talk to. He's going to get me to Jesus because that's all he's done in this entire book. He's going to walk me to Jesus because that's Nehemiah. Listen, if you're going to be like Nehemiah, you're going to be directing people to Jesus and say you can rebuild your life on the grace that Jesus gives those who trust in him.